Our Father and our God, how grateful we are that we can come here knowing that in Jesus Christ, God is with us. Because apart from him, we are lost. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we are wandering about in a wilderness. But you have led us to home. You've led us to a place where we can find our true spiritual life. And we thank you and praise you for that. And we pray, Father, that in these words of Scripture this morning, we would be encouraged in that regard so that we might glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and exalt him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you are in a strange place, it's good to have someone with you. Someone who knows the place. Someone who can help you navigate the unfamiliar territory. Now, I've been to, to China twice. Uh, both of those trips were for university-related work. The first time I went uh, Beijing Normal University, which was the sponsoring organization, provided a couple of young women to accompany me and my colleague when we went from place to place. They did it to make sure that we got from one place to another safely, to make sure that we didn't miss any meetings, to make sure that we didn't get arrested, to make sure that we met the people we were supposed to meet, that kind of thing. One of those young women was a girl named Cherry, at least that was her English name, and Cherry was a doctoral student in sports psychology, and her English was impeccable. She had actually been an English major in her undergraduate school, and so she not only accompanied us, but she also translated for us. She was wonderful to have with us. It turned out Cherry was a Christian. So we had wonderful conversations about how she came to Christ. And once she found out I was a pastor, the university sponsoring our visit actually rearranged our schedule so that she could take me to church on, sun on the Sunday that we were in Beijing. I'm not sure that we could do that today. It was a large church, one of the officially sanctioned Protestant churches in Beijing, but as it turned out, a very good church at that time. The pastor preached a very fine expository sermon from the Old Testament, at least that's the way Cherry interpreted it. I was very impressed. Now, the second time I went to China, Jean went with me. Now, this time I made sure Cherry would be with us as our translator. And we wanted to go to church again with Cherry. Well, as it turned out, the presentation of my research paper at the conference I was attending was scheduled for Sunday morning. And so I wouldn't be able to go to church. But I wanted Jean to be able to go. So we arranged our schedule with Cherry that Jean could be going to that same church that we had attended before. Now, we also discovered that Cherry lived way on the other side of Beijing at that time, at least far from our hotel, and the Protestant church was about halfway between our hotel and where Cherry lived, so it didn't make sense for Cherry to travel all the way across Beijing, which of course is enormous, to get to our hotel and then go back in the other direction to go to the church, and so we wanted to find a way that Jean could meet her at the church. And so we had the hotel identify the church, 
write down the name and address of the church on a card. And on Sunday morning, they called a taxi for Jean, and she handed the card to the taxi driver, indicating that he should take her to church. Well, he acted like he understood. Jean got into the cab, and off they went. They pulled up to a church, and he dropped her off. She paid him, and off he went. And then she noticed that this church had a statue of Mary outside of it. And it did not resemble any of the pictures of the Protestant church I had shown her. And Cherry was nowhere to be found. The cab driver had dropped, it off, dropped her off at a near Roman Catholic church. And so there was Jean in the middle of Beijing with its 20 million people, not knowing a word of Chinese, having no clue where she was, knowing that she was not where she was supposed to be, with no cell phone to call Cherry. She was lost and no one was with her. It's important to have someone with you when you are in strange territory. To put a name to it, I'll use the term withness. We needed to have withness. While the story actually did have a happy ending, a service was letting out at that Catholic church, and a young man, a student or a young professional, we surmised, was coming out, and immediately he recognized <laughs> the terror and sense of unease that my dear wife was showing. You know she doesn't hide her emotions well. Did you know that yet? And praise God, he spoke English. And he actually knew the church where Jean was supposed to go. And so he hailed another cab, actually got in the cab with her and took her to the Protestant church where they finally met up with Cherry. It's wonderful to have someone with you and terrifying when you don't because when you're in a foreign territory, it can be quite disconcerting. This Advent series is entitled God With Us. It is the story of the incarnation of the Son of God, when God himself came to be with us, to dwell with us, to, as John puts it in the first chapter of his gospel, to tabernacle with us. And in case you haven't noticed, we here on this planet are in strange territory. We are aliens in this world. This world is not our home. And the best news we can ever hear is that Jesus is Emmanuel. That means God with us. Our text is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as, she considered, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, the first thing that we notice is that Joseph is in a tough spot. He's betrothed to, the mar- or to be married to Mary. And in those days, an engagement was a legally binding arrangement, uh, but an arrangement in which the marriage is not yet consummated sexually. So Joseph and Mary were, were legally bound. They were engaged to be married, but were not yet living with each other. And Joseph had not, quote unquote, known Mary. He had not been with her sexually. The problem is that he notices that Mary's physique is changing. She's showing. It is evident that she is pregnant. And while Joseph hasn't been with Mary, it seems evident to him, and we would presume to Mary's family, that someone else had. Now, Joseph is a righteous man. He desires to have a righteous wife and a godly marriage. And as far as he knew, Mary fit the bill. But now, There is this problem. The best thing for a godly man to do in this situation, as far as he could figure, would be to divorce Mary, which he would have to do legally since an engagement was a legal arrangement. He certainly had every right to do so under Jewish law under these apparent circumstances. At the same time, Joseph was a kind and considerate man. He figured that he could go through the process quietly and not expose Mary to public humiliation and disgrace. Well, God let him stew on that for a bit, which is what God does with us from time to time, doesn't he? He does that before revealing what we ought to do. He lets us wrestle with a problem, and Joseph was wrestling with this problem. But then in the middle of the night, in a dream, an angel shows up. Not just any angel, an angel of the Lord. This wasn't a cute little chubby cherub like Reuben used to paint. And it certainly wasn't Cupid with a bow and arrow, even though a love story is involved in this tale. Most angels actually resemble human beings, except when they don't, except when they are exceptional appearance. And the angelic appearances which take place when God incarnate shows up during this period of history, tend to be extraordinary. In other words, you would know an angel in these circumstances if you saw one. There would be no question about it. And Joseph did. Even in a dream, he knew this was an angel. Now, an angel is a messenger. That's what the name angel means. And this angel has a message for Joseph. He tells Joseph that it's all right to take Mary as his wife. The things are not as they appear. It's true that Mary is pregnant, but not by another man. The child she is carrying is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph wanted a godly wife, and he wanted a righteous marriage, and he will have a godly wife, and he will have a righteous marriage. That's the message. Next, the angel gives the purpose for this curious set of events. Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit, not because of some odd display of supernatural wizardry, but because this is a special child. Indeed, the term special doesn't even begin to cover it. 
Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Names, of course, in ancient Judaism were extremely important. Uh, they were not chosen simply because they were family names, although that was done from time to time. And they were not chosen because they sounded good or cool or were unique. That happens a lot these days. They were often chosen with a vocation in mind, a calling. That is, the child was given a sense of purpose, even divine purpose, which was expressed in the given name. And that certainly was true with Jesus. Jesus is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means literally God saves. This child will be given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What a vocation that is. The Jewish expectations for Messiah were high to be sure. They looked for a political military king who would save them from the Romans and in the process heal their land from the pagan corruption precipitated by the Roman occupation. But this Jesus would do far more than that. All the ills of our world, all the brokenness, all of the corruption, all of the dysfunction in our world, all of the sickness and disease, all of the wars, all of the natural disasters were ultimately the result of sin. Either directly or indirectly, sin is the ruination of God's good creation. And this Jesus would save his people not from the brokenness, not from the corruption, not from the dysfunction or the sickness and the disease, not from the wars or the natural disasters, but he would save his people from the very cause, the very root of all of those things. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the angel then roots this glorious divine vocation in a prophetic promise. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7.14. You know, Matthew is jealous to point out whenever he can that pretty much everything Jesus came for and did was rooted in a prophetic word in the Old Testament. The prophetic word, of course, in those days was simply the Bible for these people. The Old Testament was the Jewish Bible. They did not yet have a New Testament. And Isaiah had prophesied this very event, as we mentioned in Isaiah 7:14. So this child then would have two names so far. It takes more than one name, you see, to capture the essence of what Jesus came to do. He is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, and he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the message is clear. Only God coming in the flesh to be with us could possibly save us. We could never save ourselves. We who are sinners by nature could never save sinners from sin. Do you get that? And yet we still try. We still pretend that we can manipulate our way out of our predicaments. That by education or by political action 
or by technological innovation or by financial prosperity or even by licentious liberties or by any number of idolatrous substitutes for God, we still think we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and save our bacon. It's a fool's errand, isn't it? Because we sinners cannot save our sinful selves from our own sin. All we've got to go on is our sin. It's really silly when you think about it, isn't it? Jesus' vocation was not to come, by the way, as a cosmic Santa Claus. You know the saying, he's making a list, checking it twice, trying to find out who's naughty and nice. You know, Jesus has a list too, but he doesn't have to check it twice because he already knows who's naughty and who's nice. And he knows that everybody is on the naughty list. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, except one, except Jesus. Only one, the man from heaven, the heavenly man, the second Adam. He's the only one who's altogether righteous. And he's the one coming in the flesh to be with us. And he alone can save us from our naughtiness, from our sin. And that's Jesus' vocation. And that's the prophetic promise. That's Isaiah's promise. How did Joseph respond to the promise? Well, verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph did exactly what the angel told him to do. He believed the messenger and the message, and he obeyed the messenger and the message. Now, it's kind of interesting to contrast that experience and that response to the circumstances surrounding uh, Joseph with the original prophecy uttered by Isaiah in its original context. Because when Isaiah prophesied, when he called upon this sign of Emmanuel, he was doing it during the reign of King Ahaz. King Ahaz, an unbelieving, wicked king of Judah. And his prophecy, as most prophecies are, meant for both a near-term and a long-term fulfillment. What came to pass in the birth of Jesus was the long-term fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, but it's also interesting to contrast the circumstances of the original contrast with Joseph's response. Here's the context. Two neighboring kings back in those days, Pekah, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Rezin, the king of Syria, had conspired to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. They marched toward Jerusalem with the intention of taking over the land and installing a puppet king in Jerusalem and dividing the land between the two of them. And so Ahaz, as the king of Judah in the southern kingdom, was in a tough spot, and he knew it. But God is gracious. And even though Ahaz is not a believer, even though he's a wicked king, God gave him a sign. He said, don't be afraid, Ahaz, the plan of Pekah and Rezin will fail, according to Isaiah 7, verses 4 and 7. But first, God, through Isaiah, warned Ahaz. He said to him, if you do not stand firm, you will not stand at all. And then God told Ahaz to ask him for a sign. God would then give him a sign and assure him of deliverance. But Ahaz, the unbeliever, wanted nothing to do with Isaiah or of God's sign. He didn't believe God would deliver him. He figured out a better plan, according to himself, 
He would deliver Judah through his own clever manipulation of the geopolitical landscape. He would appeal to another great power in the region. He would appeal to Assyria. Now, he didn't want Isaiah to know about his plan, and so he told Isaiah, piously pretending that Isaiah's offer had this religious-sounding argument. He said, I don't really ask for a sign. I won't put the Lord to the test. Sounds good, doesn't it? Surely we're not to put the Lord to the test. But in this case, God had already promised to give him a sign. So this wasn't putting God to the test. This was putting Ahaz to the test. And so whether Ahaz wanted a sign or not, this is what God through Isaiah said. He said to him, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I'm giving you a sign whether you want one or not. He goes on to say that before this child would know right from wrong, the two northern kings would be destroyed. And then God told Ahaz that God would bring the king of Assyria, which is what Ahaz originally wanted. And when the king of Assyria would show up, he would be too much for Ahaz to handle. Assyria would be like a plague of flies, he said, like bees swarming, like a river raging over the land. In other words, be careful, Ahaz, what you wish for. Your solution will eat you alive. God, you see, had offered Ahaz a gentle deliverance, a sign of deliverance. But Ahaz wanted a military conqueror. He wanted Assyria, but Assyria would turn on him. And then God says something very interesting at the end of this whole episode. Listen to this scripture. It's amazing. Chapter 8 of Isaiah, verses 7 and following. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. O Emmanuel. He sticks that in there right at the end. That seems strange, doesn't it? Why would he throw in, oh, Emmanuel, in the midst of that prophecy of judgment? God had offered, you see, a benevolent, merciful, gracious sign to Ahaz. The virgin will be with child, Emmanuel, God with us. But he essentially tells Ahab, if you will not have this gracious, merciful Emmanuel, God with us, you will still have God with us. You will have Emmanuel, but you will have him for judgment. And not for salvation. Wow. Your choice is what will you do with Emmanuel? What will you do with God with us? Will you believe the sign as Joseph did? Will you believe the sign and adopt Jesus into your family, into your life? This Jesus who would save his people from their sins, would you have him as Joseph had him? Or will you reject the sign as Ahaz did? and still find Emmanuel, God with us, but instead find him to be a devastating presence. 
That's the other side of the coin. For you cannot escape Emmanuel. You cannot escape God with us. It's either a wonderful promise or a devastating sign. And that is before you. Will you be like Joseph? Or will you be like Ahaz? What will you do with Emmanuel? Heavenly Father, we come to you praising you for what you've done in Jesus, recognizing that you have accomplished your perfect purposes in saving us when we cannot save ourselves, could not save ourselves. And yet, Father, you still place before us this great choice. What will we do with this son? The sign of Emmanuel. Help us, O oh God. Help us to make that decision. Lead us into a walk with you so that we will experience the grace and mercy of God with us. In Jesus' name, amen.